Our gospel reading this morning is from Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. This is a passage that should be uh, familiar to us, and uh, if it is not familiar to you, I would highly recommend getting familiar with it. (laughs) Uh, This is something that is uh, different than what we assume to be the case often until we become familiar with this. So uh, this is something that Jesus is talking about to those who thought they were doing all right. It seemed that way among other people. They thought they were doing all right by God, and so Jesus tells them this story. But before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. God, we ask that you would, this morning, give us ears to hear. God, we pray that you would not only give us ears to hear, but minds to think, to understand. But most of all, God, we pray that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 18, 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Turning then to our New Testament reading from Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 17. Uh, This is a passage that if you are not familiar with a guy by the name of Melchizedek, there's just going to be a confusing passage. If you are, listen carefully. If not, listen attentively, but just know it'll make a lot more sense later. Okay, this is uh, Hebrews 7, 1 through 17. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. 
If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear, if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If that was particularly confusing to you, welcome to the club. Uh, probably a lot to talk about uh, in that as far as helping us wrap our brains around who this Melchizedek is and uh, what it is that the author of Hebrews is talking about and how it relates to Jesus. Um, but actually, we're, we're going to go today is back to Genesis where Melchizedek is mentioned. Uh, and I will tell you this, there's actually more about him in Hebrews than there is in Genesis. Uh, so it's a very mysterious figure, and a lot has been um, talked about in regard to him of, okay, so what exactly does that mean? Well, we're going to go back and we're going to look at the very beginning when he's first mentioned and all that is told about him during you know, his, his life uh, that is recorded for us in Scripture that way. Now, we'll tell you before I get in there, though, that um, this is one of those sermons that, I mean, I kind of, there's a love-hate relationship, very ambivalent feelings here. Uh, love-hate in regard to this sermon for a couple reasons. And I just want to set those out there ahead of time before we get into this, because you may have some of the same things. Now, one of the reasons I don't like this particular passage is because it has a lot of names that are hard for me to pronounce. And sometimes you just got to deal with that. So I'm going to read a bunch of things, and I will probably mispronounce most of them, and you just got to roll with it. So I'm sorry. Maybe that's the part that you enjoy, is seeing me mispronounce things. But I don't like that part. Anyway, that's coming. Uh, the other part that I don't like about it is uh, it's, it's like... Have you ever heard a comedian who tells jokes that are funny, and so you're laughing, and about halfway through the joke, you realize he's telling it about you? <laughs> I feel like this passage is kind of one of those, where it seems so long ago and far away, and we've got battle scenes going on, and these people are invading these other people, and here's the fight that's going on. You're like, yeah, yeah, this is exciting stuff, and I'm you know, loving to hear all the political intrigue and all this kind of stuff. And then as you get farther in the story, like the farther you go, at some point it kind of clicks. You're like, oh, wait, this this isn't so long ago and far away. In fact, this is getting real up close and personal in my business. <laughs> and I want to point that out ahead of time. We could do it the other way. We're kind of, kind of sneaks up on you. But I want to put that out in front of you ahead of time uh, for this reason. Having Scripture get up in our business can either be something that we love or hate. And it depends on whether we believe that it is good for us <laughs> to have 
God reveal to us who he is and how we are to uh, live in this world and therefore saying of anybody who ought to be getting up in our business, that's exactly who we want. We want to say, no, we turn away from ourselves and our ways. We want to do things your way. We, that's what we want. This is what this is all about. This is why we come and we want to hear from this. Not to say, hey, are we the ones who are doing what's right? But show us where we're not doing right because we know that that's still part of the picture. And how can we continue to align ourselves more with who God really is and what he's doing in our lives. If we see it that way, then we kind of, as much as, as uncomfortable as it is, kind of love it that a loving God would get up in our business this way. On the other hand, if we are committed to worshiping whatever idols we're committed to worshiping and those get threatened, we're going to hate it. So I put this out ahead of time so we can kind of make that decision up front. Is this something you're up for or not of um, going through and looking at this together? Um, And I will say, as we go through this, it will seem like what's getting ready to happen the whole way through this sermon is you're going to feel it coming. Oh, here it is. He's about to tell us. So this is what you need to do. I'm going to tell you right now, no. (laughs) The only thing that I'm going to ask you to do is to pay attention to what this says. And then as you reflect on this, think about how what we are seeing in here uh, has to do with your own life, who you are, where you are. This is going to be a heart thing. It's not going to be a, so now go do this kind of thing. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the deal we have kind of going forward in this. So, with that in mind, curiosity peaked, no doubt. We're looking at Genesis chapter 14 uh, this morning and beginning with battles and kingdoms and political intrigue. Here we go. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, told you. These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. It doesn't get better. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedorlaomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zazites in Ham, the Emites in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazizan Tamar. <sighs> Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of uh, tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. 
They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Okay, we're going to pause right there. Let me untangle my tongue. So you are no doubt familiar with all of these king names and all of the places in which they ruled. No. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Um, these, I kind of wish I had a map to show you the whole area of what we're talking about here, but I think it actually will work just to explain it. Uh, when we're talking about these four kings versus five, uh, if you hear that and you don't know what, what they are and what you're thinking of, uh, who does it seem like has the upper hand? Four or five? All things being equal, five is a bigger number. <laughs> Therefore, they have the upper hand. That is not the case. Uh, What we actually have here is uh, four relatively regional superpowers from the areas of Babylon and Assyria, roughly speaking. And uh, who they are up against is these five kind of city, state, very local. I mean, this is, um, yes, State sizes versus city sizes, as far as that kind of thing goes. And uh, so you've got these five kind of city mini-kingdoms, and they're ruling over that all kind of in this uh, sort of Dead Sea Valley area uh, and surrounding area. So kind of where Abram's living and where uh, Lot is living in particular, Abram's nephew. And so what happens is these five say, hey, let's get together and not be subject to those guys anymore. No taxation without representation, that kind of thing. And the four say, no, we're not having that. And so they come over and say, let's, let's have it out. Let's settle this with a good old-fashioned war. And so that is what they do. And uh, so that's kind of how it goes. But now, hearing that you've got these regional superpowers against these five city kings, who does it seem has the upper hand militarily? It's the four, not the five. The four uh, more regional superpowers that are doing this. And so, of course, they win, and they start taking people back from uh, this Middle Eastern area, or the, what will be the Promised Land area and surrounding, back to Assyria and Babylon. Hmm, that kind of sounds familiar if you know the rest of the story. But, and all of this, by the way, is really kind of backstory to what comes next. If you've ever seen Star Wars, like this is the part of the story here that I feel like should be scrolling across space in yellow letters. (laughs) And it just gives you the, okay, here's what happened, getting us to the point that now you need to know about. So that's what all that was. All those difficult names for backstory. Okay, here we go. But the last thing that happened, and this is why it is uh, relevant for this particular story, is I mean, were there a lot of people involved in these battles? Yes, there were. Lots of lives uh, up, upended and redirected. But we're telling a particular story. As we go through the Bible, uh, there's been sort of this world history sort of thing, but now there's this focus on this one particular family, and it's the family of a man named Abram. And what we just heard in all these battles, yeah, there are all these things going on, but one of his family members was affected. And that is the reason that we're focusing on this story. Uh, So it says, they carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Okay, verse 13 and following. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. 
Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Pause. For me, most of my life, as I picture Abram and Sarai going around and they've got Lot and then they, you know, Lot's gone and now it's just Abram and Sarai, right? They're just on their own out there in the wilderness. And then you hit a passage like this at some point in your life and you go, wait, what was that? Did it say? The 318 trained men born in his household? Well, that's a lot bigger traveling party now, isn't it? And uh, how many of those born in his household were actually descended from Abram? Zero. These are not his kids. These are uh, servants and basically kind of a kind of militia force that he has gathered around him as he travels. And so they've got these people who are there. But now think about this. We just talked about the four kings uh, who overpowered the five. And now we've got this one guy, Abram. He's got 318 men, which is more than we realized he had. But 318 against this? I don't know. And then it says, verse 15, During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Pause again. Abram uh, had to decide what to do in this case, and he had to decide what to do because this is Lot. This is his nephew. And it's his nephew Lot that he has, in the last chapter, sent away. He had brought him, and we talked about how when Abram was called to go to this promised land, he was called to leave his whole family. And he did. He left his whole family, except for Lot, who he brought with him. And we said, potentially because maybe it's through Lot that God is going to give Abram a family um, But no, that is not the plan. And in fact, Lot being there continues to cause problems, and here's one of them. So they separate because there's too many people, Lot and Abram and all their people together. Uh, So they separate, and Abram lets him go. Well, now Lot's in trouble, and Abram has a decision. Do I say, well, too bad for him. Guess I got the good part of the land that didn't get attacked. Or does he say, you know, we've gone our separate ways, but that's still family. And that's the decision that he makes. And so he goes to rescue Lot, which he does. That's a whole uh, seemingly miraculous uh, part of the story, but it's not even dwelt on. It's just, yeah, that happens. And then we have some more decisions for Abram to make as he does win the battle, come back home. Still kind of backstory here. And then, verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer, come on, man, get an easier name. After he returned from defeat, defeating Big K and the, <laughs> and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. 
Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with them, went with me, to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So here is where the focus seems to be. Is yes, Abraham, Abram goes to this uh, battle, wins the battle, he brings Lot home. And then we have these two kings that come out to meet him after he has won. And um, that makes sense. You have these local kings, you know, some probably pretty excited, like the king of Sodom, pretty excited. Hey, you just rescued, you fought off the bad guys, you rescued my people, this is wonderful. Uh, But there's also maybe this element of, okay, I thought that those were the strongest people around, but apparently you're the strongest person around, and you are right here in our neighborhood. How can we make you happy? (laughs) So that you don't come after us, right? That makes sense. So we have these two kings come out to welcome victorious Abram as he returns from battle with all the spoils. Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. And we have Abram having to decide what to do with each of them. How does he respond to each of them? Why does he respond to them differently? Wouldn't it make sense that he would, you know, have a policy that's just sort of a one-size-fits-all and, hey, this is, how you, this is how you do it. When a king comes out to greet you after battle, you do it this way. He seems to not have that approach. He responds differently to the king of uh, Salem and the king of Sodom. Um, well, here's the thing. We don't really know. We don't know all of his uh, motivations. We don't know all of what was going on behind the story. But what we do know is what was recorded for us here about who these people are and how they approach him. And that may give us some clues as to why Abram responds the way he does. So first of all, you have Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem. As the writer of Hebrews points out, in Hebrew, Melchizedek, that just means king of righteousness. But then also, he's the king of Salem, which is king of peace. So we have this uh, king of righteousness, this king of peace, who comes and who brings out bread and wine. And he is someone who was not even attacked. Like that wasn't, he wasn't part of that group. And yet he comes out and greets Abram. And how does he, uh, oh, and the other part that he is, uh, the other way he's identified is not just who is, what he's king of or his name, but also that he is the priest of God most high. That he is someone who represents the people before God and someone who represents God before the people. Does this mean that God had revealed himself to Melchizedek in the same way that he had to Abram? It doesn't mean that. 
We're told in Romans that you know, God has revealed throughout creation enough that people are without excuse when looking at all that he has revealed uh, to then reject him as creator. This man recognizes that there is a creator God who is, if there are other gods, this is the highest one. Abram recognizes his representative role and uh, Abram recognizes the one true God who is the creator of heaven and earth. And so uh, this is, reminds me of that time when Paul goes <laughs> to, to preach to people and first thing he sees before he even starts speaking to people is all these idol statues. And he's gone around and looked at all of those. And he starts by telling everybody, look, I was seeing all these statues and I saw that you have one that is to an unknown God. You don't even know who you're worshiping. Well, let me tell you about this one true God. Uh, that you really ought to know. And it seems like this is kind of what's going on with Abram. Uh, To whatever extent Melchizedek recognized the one true God, Abram latches onto that and says, in that case, tell you, this is who you represent. You represent the one true God. And because you represent the one true God, says Abram gives him a tenth. Gives him a tenth. You know what it means for somebody to give a tenth of something? Have you ever heard a word associated with that? Have you heard the word tithe? That's what it comes from. That's just what it means. It just means a tenth. And, but what that means to give a tenth is actually, um, and, and this is a, a theme that kind of runs throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You see this giving of a tenth in various ways. Uh, you see it for the people of Israel, I, for if people of Israel, getting codified. This becomes a part of the law. This is what you do. You are to give a tenth of everything. Um, And it is to be given those who represent God. And the reason it is given is as a recognition of who is in authority. Who is actually in authority over? This is what you would do for the the king, effectively, uh, in most places. But in Israel, this was given actually to the representative of God. And you can parse that out different ways. Here's the thing about Abram, though. He did not come after that law had been instituted. And so today, we have people who are saying, hey, is that something we're supposed to follow or not? As we read through the Old Testament, we see the tithe being commanded, and we say, okay, so we do this, right? Or we don't do this. Which is it? Because now in Jesus, different things. What do we do? And one of the easy things to do is to say, of course we do it. It's in there. We follow it. Done. Another easy thing to do is to say, no, because of Jesus, uh, he's fulfilled everything. We are not under the old law. uh, With all its rules and regulations, we are under grace. And so, no, we don't do that at all. Here's what I would say about that. Abraham was not under that law either. And that complicates things for us. I told you, you're waiting for me to tell you what to do, and I'm not going to. I'm going to make you do the hard work of holding this up to your own life. 
uh, this is a heart issue. There is a reason that for many years, uh, Christians have given the first part of their day over to devotional reading and prayer time. It is the reason that for many generations that Christians have given the first part of their income or the first fruits of their crops. It is a recognition that everything that we have, everything that we are, belongs to God, and we are saying, you are in authority over me. And that's different than giving the, you know, 10%, but it being the last 10%. If I have 10% left over at the end of the day, at the end of the month, at the end of whatever, it means something different. It means something different to our own hearts. And that's the point. We are not under the law of uh, legality of you give this amount. Think about the uh, parable that Jesus told that we read in Luke. There was a man who was there in the temple who was like, hey, I'm getting it all right. And one of the things he mentions is I give a tenth of all I get. The way he was viewing it is if I give this much, God is happy with me. Some of us have that wrong attitude. That's not what it's about. What it is about is holding every area of our life up to Scripture and up to who God is and what he has done and is doing and will do and saying, am I living in accordance with that? The way that I uh, receive income or spend money, does that reflect what I believe about who God is and what he's doing in and through his people in this world? When we look at Abram giving to the person who represented God, who is it that represents God today? You ever asked that question? Who are the people who represent God today? You could give a lot of different answers to that in various forms or fashion. On the one hand, Every human has that responsibility and has been created in the image of God. More specifically, though, everybody who has received new life in Christ has become a representative of God. It is what is known as the priesthood of all believers. If you have been baptized into uh, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, guess what? You are welcomed into that family and you are now a representative of who he is and what he's about in this world. Again, I'm not telling you what to do, but these are things to hold up to our own lives. The other part of this, and then we're done, is how Abram didn't respond this way to the king of Sodom. But what was it the king of Sodom was doing? The king, of Sa- or the king of Salem, Melchizedek, was blessing Abram. The king, and in recognition of who God is, the king of Sodom was trying to buy Abram. Trying to buy his loyalty. I'll let you keep all the stuff. Just be nice to me. And Abram is a man who has already received promises from God. And because he has already received promises from God, this is one of those moments where he has to decide, do I trust God? 
Do I trust that God is going to fulfill on the promises that he's made to me, that he will make me great, that he'll make me into a great nation, he'll make my name great? Because if Abram believes that, then he can receive the blessing from, um, from Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And he can't be bought by the king of Sodom. But if Abram doesn't believe it, he'll probably get bought. They'll say, hey, I'll twist this around and say, maybe this is the way God's going to bless me. I'll take the stuff. But this is one of those moments where Abram realizes that that offer from the king of Sodom is not the blessing of God. It is a distraction from the promises of God. And in this moment, and we see Abram throughout his story kind of have highs and low moments, and maybe you see this one differently. I see this one as a high moment for Abram where he is trusting God and the promise that he's made. And because he trusts it, he sees these uh, two kings for what they are and what they each represent. And that's why he responds differently. The thing that stays the same is not what he does. The thing that stays the same is his trust in God. And that's what leads him to do different things to each of them. Make sense? This is also why I can't tell you what to do. I don't know the situation that you are personally facing right now, the decisions you're having to make right now. I do know the question is the same. Is do you trust God in this? Do you remember the promises that he's made to you? And what does it look like for you then? To not trust? And what does it look like for you to trust? If I can help you in that, please let me know. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.